everyone. Today is March 31st, 2020, and welcome to another edition of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. I'm your host, Mike Hansen. This week, we're discussing Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, how the bourgeois deal enriched the world with authors and professors Deidre McCloskey and Art Carden. Since we started this podcast now more than a year ago, we've had esteemed guests from a variety of fields, but having Deidre McCloskey on is special. In my humble opinion, she's one of the best living economic historians and a tremendous writer who's led a fascinating life. The book we're discussing today is an accessible, highly literary and often humorous entry into her perspectives, a sort of cheat sheet version of her essential work she calls the Bourgeois Trilogy a magisterial and literary set of three books aiming to explain human freedom as the driving catalyst for world prosperity since the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution. Professor McCloskey is a distinguished professor emerita of economics and of history, a professor emerita of English and communication, and an adjunct in classics and philosophy, all at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's written over 24 books and some 400 plus academic and popular articles on economic history, rhetoric, philosophy, statistics, economics, feminism, liberalism, ethics, and law, just to name a few. Indeed, she should be known as much for her work as a writer as an economist and historian. Here's a little known fact. We use McCloskey's Economical Writing, which is a pithy little book about writing well, as a learning tool for aspiring writers here at my firm. Some of her older works, such as The Rhetoric of Economics and The Cult of Statistical Significance, remain, in my view, essential reading for investors, as they certainly were for me. The addition of Professor Art Carden to this mix is also a real treat. Both professors are witty, amazingly well-read, and forceful in their views, which at times can be controversial, but are always inviting of other perspectives. And on that note, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at WellReadPod and Instagram at WellReadInvestorPod, or just Google the WellRead Investor to see what I'm reading, reviewing, and talking about week in and out. Now, here's our talk with Professors Deidre McCloskey and Art Gardner. Deidre and Art, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's really a pleasure and honor to have you on the program. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Glad to be here, dear. So let's talk about this book, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. But Deidre, I'd like to ask you first, the premise of this book is it's really a summation of a large body of work that you've done over many years, really magisterial, what I'll call the whole bourgeois trilogy. Would you tell us a little bit about the premise of that, how it came to be? Why write those books? Well, it came to be because I, although I was once a Marxist, or at least a socialist myself when I was a kid, I've gradually become what I define, and I think we should define as a liberal in the European sense, 19th century, classical, John Stuart Mill, the blessed Adam Smith. I always cross myself when I mention Adam Smith. (laughs) I've had this longstanding feeling that the contempt for the middle class, bourgeois being the French for middle class, the common word on the left especially, is crazy because the middle class, like my grandfather, who was an electrical contractor, is 
the groups like many of your auditors who make the economy work. So that's what I started with. And the first book was called The Bourgeois Virtues, which strikes people on the left as crazy. What do you mean virtues? These terrible bosses with the blood of the workers running from their mouths and so forth. And then having done that one, which came out 2006, then I started to think, now, wait a second, I'm an economic historian, as is art by trade. And the big question in economics, after all, is, as Adam Smith said, the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. And then it started to occur to me, now, I didn't know this before I started, that the bourgeois deal, as Art and I call it, is what made us rich. And I mean very rich by comparison with our ancestors. The ancestors of everyone here is pathetically, brutally poor. Art compared our ancestors to one of the characters in, in Les Mis, who's just unspeakably poor. And now we're, you know, we're Zooming and we're, we have houses and hot water and so forth. So it occurred to me that the ethical change that resulted in people at least tolerating the middle class, tolerating the merchants and manufacturers, and then even sometimes admiring them, was really crucial to the coming of the modern world. And as Art and I argue in the book, unique to 18th century Northwestern Europe, and then wider and wider Hong Kong, and even mainland China for a while, and India and so forth. So you see, <laughs> I went from an indignation against the people who sneer at investors and the stock market and so forth on the one hand, to a more, as it were, scientific conclusion that it's not trade or, or law or something else. It's this ethical change that caused the modern world. Yeah. And I want to talk a lot about this idea of ethics being the basis for it. But Art, how did you get involved? How did you come to help write this book and really create this great summation of this large magisterial work? So this is actually an object lesson in being an alert intellectual entrepreneur and putting yourself in the right place at the right time. I met Deirdre when I was a graduate student at Washington University in St. Louis. The Economic History Association meeting was in St. Louis, my second year of grad school. So I got to meet Deirdre there. That was a semester I was actually taking American economic history and writing a truly atrocious, just horrific paper that I keep a PDF of it as one of, I call them my hubris inhibitors, my graduate American <laughs> economic history paper and my undergrad principles of macroeconomics paper, both of which are just, just shockingly bad. So whenever <laughs> I want to get mad at my students, I look at these. I have the same later. experience, Art. My <laughs> senior thesis, I'm going to patent as a sleep aid. <laughs> But a couple of years after that, in 2005, I was getting ready to give my dissertation proposal and Deirdre McCloskey was getting ready to come and speak at, at WashU. And my advisor said, would you be willing to go pick up Professor McCloskey from the airport? And I tell graduate students that I work with, I tell my undergraduates, if someone says, hey, will you go pick up a big fancy scholar at the airport? The answer is always yes, no matter what, you have, <laughs> what else you have going on. So we got a PDF of the early version of Bourgeois Virtues. And I read the whole thing like the week before she showed up. And I remember picking her up at the airport and mentioning this. And she said, wow, you are ambitious. And <laughs> that then planted some seeds. In 2009, when I was teaching at Rhodes College, she visited Memphis, spoke at Rhodes. We went down and one of the best intellectual experiences of my life actually was a <laughs> seminar at University of Mississippi. 
which went on for like three hours before we went to dinner. And then finally in 2012, we met up for lunch because we were both filming some stuff for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I'd been doing a lot of economic journalism for Forbes.com and various other places for a while. And she asked if I wanted to come on board for this project. And uh, again, if a scholar, Professor McCluskey stature says, hey, do you want to co-author a thing? The answer is always yes. That's how I became, in some sense, the uh, Stephen Dubner to her Steve Levitt. <laughs> well, the final product is really quite erudite. It's very pithy and it, it really works well. One of the first things that just strikes you is that there's this idea that nostalgia and pessimism worsen poverty. First, what does that mean? And secondly, what is the obsession with nostalgia? That's one of the things that your people, investors, can get from the book besides a correct economic history of the world, which is a good deal of optimism about the future. Because pessimism, this idea that, well, we're stuck with the income we've got, we can't increase it, investment is kind of stupid, and it's just a way of stealing money from poor people, all that kind of talk. I mean, you know, my friends on the left want the poor to be better off, but Art and I and other liberals who aren't really on the right, we aren't conservatives in that sense, but we know actually how to help the poor, which is to allow the economy to innovate. It's kind of cool to be pessimistic. So there's a temptation to be cool instead of correct. I think there are a lot of quick, easy, pithy, emotionally satisfying responses to optimism. People said about Julian Simon, for example, says, oh, well, it's like the person who jumps off a building and around the 10th floor says, well, everything's going okay. You know, that's what you optimists are doing because you're, you don't realize you're about to hit the ground. And then further with nostalgia, my kind of back of the envelope theory of nostalgia is that you know, we see how it all worked out. Like life is fine right now. It was okay. So on one hand, we have the certainty that things in 1995 led to a 2021 that's sort of okay. That combined with, I've heard people say, you know, I remember when I was much younger, I, I didn't hear about teen pregnancy or drug use or things like that. And I said, because you were eight years old and, <laughs> and you know, grownups don't talk about teen pregnancy and drug use in front of their eight-year-olds. So this stuff has always been going on. And I think you're, you're exactly right. that nostalgia is bad for the economy and bad for the poor. So that's very interesting. Let's flip that around. And, you know, Deidre, it's interesting you say all this because I actually keep a motto just above my monitor, which is that the optimists triumph. And yeah. it's kind of an old saying, in, in fact, in our world. Your books are more about optimism and what you're going to call innovism. Yeah. Uh, what is innovism? And let's talk about that. It's a much better word than capitalism. The word capitalism, it's a lousy word. It sounds very nice. I mean, why wouldn't we want to be sociable? But capitalism was a word invented by the enemies of innovism. People who didn't want the world to change. They wanted to decide how it was going to change. It makes people of all politics think that the heart of enrichment is investment. Now, I don't want to insult your people here, but in investment is necessary, of course. But the spring in the watch, the mechanical watch, is creativity, is ideas. You need water that's liquid at normal temperatures. You need a labor force. You need sunlight. And so you need investment too. But nothing happens unless there's a good idea, such as take an old one, containerization. That's the key point. So that's why we should call what we're engaged in, all of us, as innovism, not capitalism. 
Yeah. And so what are the conditions necessary then? What is this change that happened in order to, to have the possibility for across many strata having this creativity? We claim that it's not what a lot of other people have said, a rise in the savings rate, which, by the way, didn't happen in the 18th century, or canals or international trade. We point out that the trade across the Indian Ocean was much larger than across the Atlantic until quite late, and yet didn't cause the great enrichment, as we call it. So our claim is, we have a lot of evidence for it, is that it's liberalism in the classical sense coming to the minds of advanced intellectuals, John Locke, Voltaire, Thomas Paine, Mary Wollstonecraft, in the 18th century, that then becomes a political idea. The famous words of the slave owner, Thomas Jefferson, that all men are created equal, is sort of the short form of what was asserted in the 18th century against millennia of hierarchy against the idea that if you're a commoner, you're a jerk. Only the nobles and kings in Shakespeare are admired. Everyone else is treated as a comic interlude. That basic liberal idea, which of course wasn't followed <laughs> until slowly, slowly, we, we Americans had slaves, for example, and, and women were the property of their husbands. All that was gradually changed. People got freer and freer. And then, as the English say, and we use this phrase in the book, it permitted people to have a go. And permitting people, instead of saying, you're a milkmaid, born a milkmaid, stay a milkmaid, instead of that, you're given your accorded opportunity. Thinking about the investment space, thinking about mutual funds, the idea of a diversified portfolio of stocks and things like that. I do a lot of webinars and, and things on personal finance for the Foundation for Economic Education. And I always tell students, okay, put your money in mutual funds, Roth IRA, diversify SP 500, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Adam Thierer at, I think he's at the Mercatus Center still, has this great phrase, permissionless innovation. The fact that for the most part, if you want to come up with the idea of a small cap mutual fund or an S&P 500 index fund, for the most part, you don't have anybody saying, well, who do you think you are to do this? It's, it's something that is, is at least acceptable and there's not too much standing in the way. Whereas in earlier times and up to the present in, in many, many countries, that's not the case. Deidre, this all sort of makes me think everyone with Adam Smith tends to talk about the wealth of nations. But yeah. to my view, I think the theory of moral sentiments has a lot more to offer. Would you agree that that book offers a lot of this type of perspective and observation? Absolutely. I love that book. Every one of your hearers should buy the book cheap from Liberty Fund in a scholarly edition and read it. It's actually funny. <laughs> yeah, now, you know, it is. It is. You know, it seems seems odd to say that it would be funny, but it is. I didn't even know of its existence until I was about 50 years old. Wow. I'm an economist like art. I have a PhD in economics from an excellent economics program. What we didn't study the history of economic thought in a serious way. So I didn't ever read this book. Then I started to read it and then teach it especially in Holland at a department of philosophy. And it blew my mind because it's in, in the way that Adam Smith's other book, The Wealth of Nations, is the beginning of economics. This book is the beginning of what you might call social psychology. 
and it's really smart. And it's about equality. It's about us being all the same kind of people instead of the lords and the commoners. It's, it's a basis for the wealth of nations. Hmm. It also reminds me, there's a really wonderful chapter in your book about the changing nature of happiness. And so, Art, what does that mean? How has happiness changed as a conception? So in a lot of ways, we changed our theology of happiness. So one of my favorite lines, it was in an early version of the book that ended up not making it, but in the first Star Wars movie, C-3PO and R2-D2 are going through the desert of Tatooine, and C-3PO says to R2-D2 about droids, he says, we seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. <laughs> and this is George Lucas lifting the line directly from, I think it was Hidden Fortress, Akira Kurosawa's film. I believe uh, that's where, right. Yeah, there's actually a really interesting Hidden Fortress Easter egg in the first Star Wars movie, but I won't go down that road. <laughs> but yeah, one of the peasants says to the other, we're peasants. We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life. People embrace what we call the blue blood deal in this book and what Deirdre calls the aristocratic deal, which is bow and curtsy when Henry V tells you to bow and curtsy, go fight and kill and die in the name of God, Harry, and St. George. And if you're lucky, then maybe I won't have slaughtered you by the time all is said and done. If you fulfill your proper office of obedience, then God will reward you. But changes in church governance kind of help people see that, well, you know, things can be kind of okay here too. Why should we suffer and scratch the ground while, you know, the, the big nobles and all of these other people are living high on the proverbial hog? People came to appreciate and came to understand we can have our pie in the sky, but we can also have pie here too. Yeah. You can see why Art was a terrific co-author of this book. All this clarity and humor, that's Art. Whereas, you know, I tend to like footnotes quite a lot. <laughs> Well, not only do I support a Star Wars reference, but Art, I'm going to tell you that I also occasionally support a viewing of pro wrestling as well, which- Oh no, oh no, oh, how vulgar, oh, I'm appalled. All the American archetypes are on display at any given time when you watch wrestling. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to stay on this philosophical bent though for a moment. There's a very interesting term that you both coined called the conjective. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. Which I find it to be very explanatory in terms of some of the problems that I see today, just in terms of people with their own subjective points of view of the world, viewing that as a reality versus things that are just flatly more objective about the world. What is that idea? What does it mean? The idea is that there's the subjective that you have that I can't ever find out about. You can talk to me, but I don't know if that's really what's in your heart. And then there's objective in the sense that it's God's view of the world, where the, the stone falls and God knows it, and it's just objective. But in fact, most of our lives operate in this kind of middle ground, and it's about speech, about how we talk to each other. And that's the conjective. It means in Latin, thrown together, because that's what we are. We aren't isolated brains in a vat having a subjective experience. And we aren't God, but we're in this rhetorical space, the space of talking to each other. And I think it would help a lot if we understood this word and then started talking to each other, because those are the practical things, the practical things about investments. It's the old story in modern finance. There are fundamentals, but there's also opinion. It's the processing of the fundamentals and other things that makes for the value of an investment. I really like thinking about conjectivity. And again, that, that's Deirdre's term, as far as I understand it. I, I, have, yeah. I have nothing to do with coining that. But it's a concept that makes a lot of sense 
of the world to me because in, in thinking back to like reaching really, really deep to high school chemistry and physics, like a lot yeah. of the constants and Avogadro's number and all this other stuff that I learned in chemistry and physics labs, like these are objective. But conjectivity refers to trillions of cognitive handshakes are what produce what we call the rules of football. Okay, well, the rules of football mean something very, very different when you are talking about the college game in the United States versus the professional game in the United States versus the professional game in Canada versus what the rest of the world refers to as football. Through a series of cognitive handshakes, the rules of football changed a little bit. One of the interesting things, and it's like right in the first page of the book, is that classical liberals in the different ways that you define it, but that one place you say there may be an exception, particularly for government, is with plagues. And well, early in the plague. Relative well, to your views, how does the last year fit into that context? Well, how can I say? I have doubts with my other libertarian friends who are just outraged by lockdowns and so forth. Mm. And I say to them, well, yeah, okay, I, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. And it, it's very arbitrary and very socialist. But it does seem to me that if a forest fire is just starting, it might be a good idea to compel people to come and pour water on it, say. Uh -huh. Or, or if, if the Canadians invade the United States, and I'm really, I can hardly sleep. <laughs> and if they invade the state of Maine, I think the smart thing to do is to send the American military there quickly, not to kind of wait until they get to Connecticut. So the same thing holds for a plague. Look, I'm trying to get my second COVID shot. In Chicago, I'm telling you, it's worth your life. And it would have been so much better to do it commercially. CVS and the independent pharmacies and so on have the stuff and sell it to people like you and me and give vouchers to poor people so that they could do it. They're on an equal standing with us. And then I'd pay a hundred bucks or something for a shot. The response to COVID, I was thinking the other day, has been... I, I really can't think of anything in my lifetime, and I'll be 42 in a few weeks, that has been a bigger policy disaster. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest failure of Blackboard economics and yeah. sort of Blackboard political science that I've ever seen in my entire life. Because yeah. if, if there's ever a case for the government to get involved in the market, it's exactly this one, where you have clear spillovers. Mm -hmm. You have We talk about it a little bit in the book maybe some stuff has to bend at the very, very beginning of the plague. But at every step, the government to whom we look as being the ones who are going to step in and fix the market failure has made things worse. They've actively made things worse than a coronavirus pandemic. Just the way they've messed it up leads me to think that we all need to go back again and reread theory of moral sentiments. So Deirdre mentioned that Smith is funny. In Wealth of Nations, he has this amazing passage on the statesman who should direct private people and how to employ their capitals. He says he loads himself with the most unnecessary attention and is nowhere more dangerous than in the hands of a man with folly and presumption enough to think himself fit to exercise it. That's the story of 2020 and 2021. So this book is just chock full of literary reference. Really, it's sort of a master course in Western literature in certain <laughs> senses, particularly appreciate the call out to the Branna productions of the Henry Fourth mm. plays. <laughs> but if you could only choose two or three books for someone who's interested in the ideas and wants to just go further, what would the two of you say to that? Well, we've been saying them, the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. I mean, everyone should read these books. And as I said, shamefully, I didn't read them until I was 
rather advanced, whereas art, he got onto this 20 years before I did. But I'd still never read Wealth of Nations until I had a PhD. Yeah, Theory of Moral Sentiments, as I said, I'd never heard of, much less read. And the Wealth of Nations, I only read when I taught it. So, Deidre, I'd like to, as we look to wrap this up, I'd like to ask you a little bit more of a, a personal question, if, if sure. you're willing to entertain it. Of course. Which is, you're an economic historian, but you're also a communicator and a professor of English. That's true, yes? I am. I am. Um, and yet you've dealt your whole life with a stutter. And I've seen you yes, speak many right. times online. If you would just say a few words about how you've surmounted those challenges, yeah. I've known several people like that, including my own boss. I'm so pleased at the behavior of Joe Biden on this matter, because Joe, like me, is a lifelong stutterer, which explains, by the way, some of his somewhat strange speech pattern. Mm. Once I knew he was a stutterer, and I only knew this about two years ago, I then watched him talk and I could see when he was avoiding a word or trying to avoid a block. Two mm. percent of the born males in every culture in the world, it's not culturally specific stutters, and one half percent of the born females. And I was a born male, I should point out, until 1995, I was called Donald. And I was married for 30 years to the love of my life and have a couple of grown children and three grandchildren. So it's about four times more common in men. But frequently, as in, as in Biden's case, it gets better as you get older. Now I'm nerveless about interviews like this or speaking to a thousand people or so on, maybe too nerveless, <laughs> the, the arrogance of competence. It aids in a, the great Christian virtue of humility. And only a fool thinks that she is perfect, that her opinions are the only ones that anyone should pay any attention to. So I think from an ethical point of view, having handicaps like this is a good thing. Hmm. In fact, it's odd. I would not, hmm, it's strange, I sometimes think about this, I would not have stuttered, because it wouldn't be me. It wouldn't be Deirdre. Uh, so to round things out, what's next for the both of you? What are you both working on? What do we expect to, to see next? I do a lot of writing for the American Institute for Economic Research and other places. They tell me that next month, my book, Strangers with Candy, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life will appear under their imprint. It's a collection of you know, edited essays of that, that I've written for them. Yay, so, yay, yay. Yeah. So that's coming out. I've decided that I want to sort of devote the rest of my life to the study of this relationship between slavery and capitalism, because this is a, mm -hmm. a common claim on the left, that we're rich because of slavery. And in the process, I, I've done a lot of deeper reading into the work of the British economist, William Harold Hutt, who spent most of his career in South Africa. In, in fact, was such a vicious critic of apartheid that he at one point lost his passport. Like the South African government mm -hmm. stripped him of his passport. He retired in the mid-1960s and went to spend two years at the University of Virginia. But before he did so, he dropped a bomb on South Africa, basically, with a devastating economic critique of apartheid. And a little bit of investigation turned into a series of papers. And now next summer, I'll be working on a book about William Harold Hutt and his criticisms of apartheid and what exactly economics in this broad Smithian tradition can say. Oh, fascinating. Well, I, I'm, I'm certainly very eager to see the results of that project. I've actually taught in South Africa after apartheid. But my, my own obsession this year is to write a book on 
English agricultural history, a subject that I worked on, good God, is it half a century ago, and that I want to make into a book because books last longer than articles. And I'm going to bring up to date my thinking about what was called in England open fields, open field agriculture, and then in the 18th century, especially enclosure. It, it's meant to be an essay in humanomics, namely an economics that has the math, has the statistics, has the objectivity, but then also has the conjectivity of ethics and faith and human talk. It's a kind of rounding out of my scholarly life. Well, I personally look forward to both those things. I want to say, Art, Deidre, thank you so much for being guests on our program. It was a real delight to have you. Thank you for having us. I've enjoyed it. That was our conversation with Deidre McCloskey and Art Carden. That's fun all the way around for me and so very much to think about. My favorite part of this conversation is that Deidre and Art both just aren't opposed to having a little fun with their subject. There's a willingness to engage with a kind of jocular humility to all of this that's really rare today, and I wish for so much more of it across the spectrum of whether it's literary discussion, political discussion, economic discussion, we could use plenty more of it. Come back in two weeks on April 14th as we sit down with Arnold Kling to discuss his book, The Three Languages of Politics, Talking Across the Political Divides. This should be a very useful conversation. Kling presents a clear and simple set of ideas to help us each understand differing political points of view and to get along with them better. I personally found it a helpful book and I think you might too. Until then, from all of us at The Well-Read Investor, may all your reading profit your mind and your money. Take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2021.